Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our brand new Substack newsletter and website at LetItRollPodcast.com. We've got archives of every episode sorted by genre, era, guest, co-host, and mini-series. It's also a great way to support the show if you can afford it. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes Eugene S. Robinson to discuss his memoir, A Walk Across Dirty Water and Straight Into Murderer's Row, his experiences in the hardcore and post-hardcore scenes, and much more. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, and today we've got a special occasion. We're breaking all the rules. I never interview musicians, and I never interview anybody about their autobiography, but Eugene S. Robinson has got me breaking the rules. We're going to discuss his book, A Walk Across Dirty Water and Straight into Murderer's Row. Eugene, welcome to Let It Roll. Uh, thanks for having me. I, I appreciate it. I think this is the first bit of major press that I've done on the book, so it's exciting. Well, and this probably be the most major you do. I mean, unless you're on 60 Minutes or something, but that's neither here nor there. So the book, A Walk Across Dirty Water and Straight into Murderer's Row. What the hell does that title mean? Um, well, there's a, a Whipping Boy song uh, called Cracked Mirror off of uh, Sound of No Hands Clapping. And that's one of the lines from the song. Um, and, it, you know, shorn of a moral framework, it's got sort of religious, uh, you know, undertones, right? Walking on, on water, uh, the water being full of filth and, and, uh, you know, and then the murderer's row was my lifelong penchant for getting in, into trouble almost as quickly as I get out of it. So, um, it was a, a pretty a, a accurate summation of what I spent my time doing from birth to about 27 or 28 years old. All right. And so put it into the global musical history context. What what was Whipping Boy? You already told us Whipping Boy is your band in the 80s. Put it in a category, genre, region. Tell us who, what, when, where, why about Whipping Boy. Well, you know, it was it was first generation hardcore. Um uh, or, or if you, if you're want to be a complete and total purist, it is second generation hardcore. Uh, but it was the first generation of hardcore that had no pretense at anything else by which I mean, uh, I started paying attention to the music in 70. I was paying attention to music my whole life, but in 77, I started paying attention to the stuff that was coming off of the lower East side. And then secondarily stuff that was coming out of England and, and, uh, uh, there were bands that existed prior to me forming, uh, you know, Whipping Boy, uh, but those bands had been together since 77, 78, um, and those were the ones that managed to actually make the transition from punk rock to hardcore, and I'm thinking, like, you know, Stephen Ielpi with False Prophets, 
I used to see him on the subway, you know, when I was 15 or 16 in high school. So clearly he was influenced by first wave of, you know, uh, British punk rock. Um, but not a lot of those, not a lot of those cats actually made the transit from, from punk rock to hardcore. They, they, they did not, um, you know, bands like the bad brains, you know, were maybe first generation and we were the second generation. So formed at the same time that the teen idols formed or minor threat formed. Um, and this is to be distinguished from like the eighth generation, which is, yeah, you know, uh, uh roll call, which is the, the last new hardcore band that I heard of that's supposed to be any good, you know? So, and now we're talking, this band was formed in 2022. So we are multiple generations in the whole hardcore movement it's a definable genre at this point but the birth was whipping boy the birth was whipping boy not middle class or bad brains but for no no i mean for, I'm, 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 I'm talking i'm talking about for i'm talking about for me uh, even, oh, okay. though there, even though there was a band before whipping boy there's this band called al and the exes that i played saxophone for but that that owed a greater debt to somebody like james chance or, you know, the Decoding Society or, or, you know, Lester Bowie or those guys than it did to, to any kind of punk rock. The No Wave movie. No Wave, as correct. It's, as it's, correct. As it's summarized. So one more sort of meta question before we get into the book. You've already gotten into the history a little bit. But I also wanted to ask you why you chose to write a memoir of this facet of your life. And if is there a sequel? I mean, it, the book stops with roughly the end of whipping boy but it doesn't include oxbow um which is the band it, 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 most most known for is there going to be an oxbow edition you know follow-up to the it, it mentions oxbow it mentions the circumstances under which i decided not to kill myself and that had to do with the creation of oxbow so whatever kind of mental agitator that i was going through I don't, I don't say whatever to throw it off like it's casual i know exactly what it was but the adjective that I was going through kind of found its home in Oxbow and that sort of sort of changed things. So the idea was to, first of all, nobody wants to read a 600-page memoir. And second of all, the, the Oxbow years, also known to me as the years I lost my mind, were less attractive for me to write about because though there was a lot of quiet embrace of self and I was I was no longer, you know, becoming, but I was just being, um, I'm a much worse person during those years. <laughs> and simultaneously, uh, sim simultaneously in a lot of ways, a much better person. You know, I managed to be, you know, a, a good, a good father and to, for a certain period of time, a decent husband, but I did a lot of, a lot of very bad things in that period as well. So I had cold feet about writing a memoir because of that. And Adam Parfi was insisting, insisting that he died. And then Christina, who runs Feral, came to San Francisco and said, look, you know, you could you could fill one with, you say, birth to the creation of Oxbow, and it would be fully entertaining, whether you want to talk about Jean Genet or Gregory Corso, Corso or Ginsburg or LeVay or Manson or, you know, John Wayne Gacy. You could just, you could, it's pretty entertaining up until that point. I was like, okay, if you think that people will buy it. Second version um, there's a possibility, but uh, I don't see it happening based on what anybody will pay for. Like, if you want to pay me a certain amount of money to completely upend my life and to reveal to the world what a grade A class one scumbag I sometimes have been. Yeah, OK, you're going to have to pay for that. <laughs> so I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it for the same. Uh, you know, I got to be able to eat and, you know, with the Internet being what it is right now, all of this stuff makes it very hard for me to gain continued employment. So. 
I see. I see. Well, I wasn't going to reveal the the non-suicide at the end of the memoir because that seemed like a spoiler. Um, although well, I guess it, people it, know you're yeah, not de- yeah, you haven't yeah, been dead yeah. for twenty five exactly, years. So. Exactly. <laughs> he has not not like General Generalissimo Francisco Franco not dead yet. Or still, or, or, or alternatively, still dead. Yeah. All right. So let's get into sort of the music history. And, and you know, I, again, as a meta commentary, I was serious about I don't usually talk to musicians because to me, Let It Roll is a secondary source, not a primary source. So I, I try to talk to people who have some emotional distance from the matters at hand. So I just want to warn listeners that we're breaking uh, from that tradition. And before we uh, go to the next question, I need to play the first song. And this is off um, the first full-length album by Whipping Boy. This is America Must Die. America Must Die from the first Whipping Boy full length sound of no hand clapping. And as you can see, no say, hands, no hands, excuse me. Yes, no hands clapping. And, um, but I, I feel like you can give the kind of a meta perspective and, and, and have a little distance. You know, it's been so long in your life that I think, uh, I trust that you'll be able to, to give it some distance. But I also want to give, let you be free to give your personal perspective because it's a really entertaining read christina was right it's it's a very entertaining read although i had hoped when you didn't kill yourself at the end that we could assume you were going off into the sunset into a more mature happier more fulfilled better era sad to hear that <laughs> that was not the no, case yeah well you know things mutate along along phenotype right like you you know you're not going to get a, a lion that wakes up one day and says i really want to eat a carrot despite what my kids' books tell me. Uh, so, so, but you know what? I, you know what? Uh, I'm going to have to go ACDC on this one and say, you know, I, I never shot anybody that didn't carry a gun. So, so, so if you got done dirty, it was because you were in a place where that could happen to you. I'm not taking total responsibility for this stuff. Fair enough, fair enough. So, um, but let's go back to your musical origins a little bit. Before you were into punk, or right around the same time you were into punk, you were also an active participant in one of the other two legendary scenes, or I guess there were probably like four legendary scenes going in New York in that time, if we include hip-hop and what was going on with salsa. But you managed to be a participant in the disco era, Studio 54, as well as keeping an eye on what was going on in the Bowery how did that happen and how are you balancing those two? Were you just compartmentalizing your participation in those scenes or were you crossing over in your mind? I wasn't crossing over in my mind. You got to understand, and this is this is a mystery to people who live in 2023 New York. Uh, there was a, a, a certain great amount of stigma attached to being a bridge and tunnel person. You get if you want to watch you want to get a sense of that, watch Saturday Night Fever. And hey, you know, I mean, and logistically speaking, you know, nobody that you met in a club in, on 52nd Street is going to get in the subway with you and go all the way back to Brooklyn to have sex with you. Nor are they going to have you come to the house where they probably share with a roommate because they go to Columbia. So it was, you know, you had to be 
there was a class distinction between who was making out well in these scenes and not. And I think largely, I, like I, I mentioned in the book, I discovered much to my, you know, I just I woke up one day like 30 years later and realized, oh, they were letting me in because they thought I was a party facilitator, read drug dealer, not because I was dressed fashionably or, you know, they rec- I could dance or whatever else. So, um, you know, I didn't feel strange to me at all, mostly because uh, I was a pretty solitary guy. I didn't go there with lots of friends. I didn't go there with any friends. I didn't make friends when I was there. I would go participate and then go back to, you know, doing what I was doing. I hadn't figured out that for a lot of people, these were extensions of social lives. I just figured, okay, I'm in high school. I want to go do something fun Friday. I'm going to go to a disco Saturday. Oh, wow. I hear that Klaus Nomi is playing. I'm going to go down to the mud club and check it out. So, you know, nobody spoke to me. It was, it was rare that I even managed to pick up Klaus's wife. That was unique. <laughs> <laughs> I see. <laughs> and, and, and well played. I, didn't even know Klaus was married to a woman. But so, and you talked about the, the no wave scene and you're interested. No, 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 in no, 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 no. Oh, not Klaus Nomi, Klaus uh, Fluoride. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, you said you, you said you read the book. I thought, sorry, I, I don't want to read the book with you. I don't want to spoil it for you. Yes, the Klaus Nomi and his older, or Klaus Floyd, sorry, and his older wife. But you're already you're throwing me off because you're switching coasts already. Yes, and this yes, is sorry. this is what I was about to get to. You you mentioned that you had been in a band playing sax, which is classic. You know, if you know Fear and their song "New York's All Right," if you like saxophones, yep. classic that you were playing a saxophone in a New York, uh, no wave band. The book, I mean, it's clear that you you don't start playing punk until you move out to the West Coast. Why was that? Like, why why were you not more of a participant in the CBGB scene? And also, you know, you mentioned Klaus Floyd, but you also mentioned his his, his bandmate Jello Biafra. You mentioned Henry Rollins, Ian McKay, Lydia Lunch, but no mention of HR, the Bad Brains. Like, for me, just looking at it from the outside. You're the leader of a hardcore band. You came out of New York City. You're a black guy. It seems pretty likely the Bad Brains are going to be your gateway to hardcore, but that doesn't seem to be the case. No, I, I didn't see them. I, it took me a while to see them. I heard I'd heard Pay to Come, but they were in transit from DC, North Carolina, and DC to New York around the same time that I was leaving to go to California, and so I, I missed them live. I don't I think the first time I saw them live had to have been in New York City, um, which means it had to have been Whipping Boy had to have already played. Um, And I was going to put actually an extended bit in about Bad Brains because the worst show I ever played was when Whipping Boy played support uh, uh, for Bad Brains in Oakland, California, uh, a Wes Robinson show and at the Omni. In, uh, which was owned and operated by uh, accused uh, child molester John Nady. Um, and, uh, this is for a little fun fact, but it was the worst show that we've ever played. And I played a lot of shows and it was terrible, terrible, terrible. If it had been a fight, it was one of those fights where you go, what happened to the fighter we knew? Uh, the bad brains had completely crawled inside my head, really screwed up my game. And uh, I just, I just, I just, I was done before I started. So I, I think probably, yeah, I blinked, man, badly, badly. And these guys knew me from the Lower East Side already. So it was doubly uncomfortable. It'd be one thing if like they hadn't remembered me from the Lower East Side. And it was like, I mean, it's 
failing failing as a as a as a stranger is a lot easier than failing as a known quality, you know. <laughs> so it was there, yeah. There were, yeah, it didn't connect to too much else, so I kind of left it out. But um, and then, of course, any discussion of bad brains has to then bring in involved with all of what happened in Texas. And it was just a, it was a digression that was unnecessary for me to take. I think. I see. So this is one of these autobiographies where it was uh, edited in a self-serving way for the author. Is that what you're saying? N- not necessarily. <laughs> I mean, I put in a lot of bad stuff about myself. But it's true. Mu- did, music, but- mu- musically. You know what? What does it say that I, we played with bad brains in that? And it was also latter generation. Uh, uh, it was Whip, Whipping Boy as a five piece. So this is well into the career and well toward kind of you know. So it just. I mean, around the time I was auditioning for Van Halen and not so on. So it was. It was just a weird time all around. All right. Well, let's hear our next song, and then when we come back, we'll get to the genesis of Whipping Boy, uh, and. Uh, Palo Alto campus of Stanford, but this is Whipping Boy Cracked Mirror. Voices rise in anger, driven by the tide. Lovers in other sunlight, come along for a ride. And that's right. That was Cracked Mirror from Whipping Boys. Second, no, no, I didn't put this in my notes. Second album or first album? That, no, it's, it's, it's the first that's album. The first album. Yeah, that's yeah, right. So but it has in, that weird organ in it, um, which is. I played live. Uh, you played the organ live. Wow. I played it live. I had to put uh, colored tape on the keys so I could see them in the dark, you know, before I had figured out that it's just a repeating scale on the keyboard. But yeah, that was me. So and 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 like for me going back and listening to the Whipping Boy over for this book at the time or when I first became aware of Whipping Boy and everybody told me stay away from the second album and I immediately went and found a cassette copy you could not find that album anywhere that was one of those things that was sort of on my list for 15 years until I connected with you and got it personally but the word was stay away from muru muru but i i found like going back and listening at the first whipping boy album there were plenty of clues of your direction um, right what wasn't going to stay doctrinaire so you know hardcore first generation second generation hardcore but what i wanted to ask you though was it seemed like from reading the book that whipping boy was more of a, a response to your experience of Stanford rather than anything to do with New York. And that, that kind of made it made sense to me that, you know, hardcore a suburban expression. It's Orange County or Huntington Beach or, you know, suburban DC or whatever, not an urban expression like the original punks were. Do you feel like you're, that that's true in your case, that it was an expression of your alienation from college and Stanford and the suburbs? Yeah, that's that's pretty observant. And actually, it touches on the last question you asked that I didn't fully answer. My last year, my last year in New York, um, I was mostly majorly involved in being a consumer of of culture and the idea. You know, I went to uh, James C2 from Necron 99, you know, who was pretty noteworthy. The guys from Urban Blight, uh, Jamie Cars from Urban Blight. These guys were in my high school. They were in my high school class. They were friends in the, so the trumpet player, uh, uh, what's his name? I can't remember now, for Urban Blight. So I was on the swim team with. 
uh, Mark Pishko from the Magitones polka band. So I knew guys in bands. And so I understood right away that it wasn't a little rascals deal, that you had to have a rehearsal spot, you had to have a van, you had to have equipment. And it was a logistical thing that it didn't make sense for me to put together, you know, on the verge of me leaving New York, which I knew right away. So I would have had to start that in 77 because I was already applying for colleges by 78. 79 and 77 I wasn't I wasn't ready I was involved in you know competitive bodybuilding I was involved in you know so minor league kind of martial arts at that point um with this guy Charlie Nelson so it just and then applying for college and then discos and consuming culture so yeah it, it was um starting it at Stanford was probably a single <laughs> a single response to the misery that was my first year at Stanford. So, um, and it was, you know what, I, didn't, I never came to visit before I, I, I showed up for my first day of school. Um, we didn't have the money to be flying around to do college tours. So I just kind of looked at pictures and read descriptions and no internet back then. And uh, the underground, underground guide to colleges uh, and its ratio of cats to chicks. <laughs> and I'm, I'm not, that's not me saying that. That's what it said on the page, cats to chicks. It was a, fa- a favorable enough uh, ratio, so I figured, well, I might actually be able to get a date there. And I had no idea that California was an incredibly different mindset and place and space. None. No idea. Had I visited, I don't know that I would have gotten it in a two-day visit, but I was in major, major kind of cultural shock uh, at that time. I mean, do you think it would have made any difference had you gone to an East Coast school? Like, do you think it was the fact that you were in a, you referred to it several times as a nearly Ivy League school or the West Coast's imitation of the Ivy League? Like, had you gone to an Ivy League school, would it have made any difference if you went to Columbia there in New York City or if you'd gone to MIT in Boston or, uh, you know, one of the Ivy yeah, Ivies? Yeah, it would have been like Harvard or Princeton. Or so I, Princeton's New Jersey. I want to get a little further away. So probably Harvard. And there's so many people from my high school who went to Harvard. It would have been it would have been easier for me to ignore. But I was already bitten by the music by the time I I mean, clearly I got into 77 and it showed no signs of, you know, slacking off by the time I had left in, in 1980. In fact, I got beaten up. I get this thing that tore my, you know, the broken bottle that tore, tore all the cartilage in my ear was at a midnight showing of, of Clash's Rude Boy. So I was in. I was in guys. I good friends of mine bounced at the uh, at when uh, the Clash played Bonds. You know, I've known Harley forever, and he was drumming for you know the Stimulators, Loud Fast Rules. So I, I, I probably definitely would have gotten involved in the Boston hardcore scene, but that would have been fu- still a, a major fundamental difference. Having participated in that scene later on in '81, that would have been a major difference for me from <laughs> getting involved in Northern California hardcore, which was you know where hardcore was happening when I was happening. So, And essentially, you know, retrospectively, people look back on Northern California hardcore and see it as kind of the dead Kennedys and everybody else. And you weren't even on that side of the Bay, or I guess you're on the right side of the Bay, but south of the city. So you're you're in Palo Alto, which is quite a bit away um, from San Francisco. But how much was the dead Kennedys and that scene, the alternative tentacle scene? Like, did you see yourself as sort of joining that squad or that scene or did you see yourself as coming in like a meteor hitting them from out of nowhere no i mean you got to understand they were my first uh uh connection point to the bay area through uh klaus's 
wife or ex-wife or whoever she was. I mean, those were the people, you know, like it's like easy riding when you're in the right place with the right people, you know, you drop this acid. So it was like, you go out to San Francisco, you want to go to a show, start mentioning these names, you know, Klaus, Jello. And so it seemed like a good deal. It seemed like I, I wasn't aware of the cultural, you know, I sway that, you know, I knew he had run from Biafra, had run from mayor, seemed like a nice guy. And uh, our first show was unscheduled. Like I mentioned, it was with uh, where we just bully our way on stage at the Circle Jerks. And after we played four songs or three, three or four songs and afterward, Klaus and Darren, Darren Poligro came up to us and said, you know, who the hell are you guys? So they were our first, you know, first and biggest connection to, you know, I get, I guarantee you, we could have played for forever had we started in New York. And you know, it's not like the bad brains would have said it at any point, "Who are you guys?" They didn't get care, right? So, uh, <laughs> but you know, so so the dead case, and then of course you can't you can't downplay the role of of you know Tim Johannan, who was uh, with KPFA, Maximum Rock and Roll, the radio show first, and the magazine, and then the record, not so quite on the Western Front. I mean, we we in Palo Alto, we're about thirty minutes south of San Francisco, so. We are, you know, the clo- one of the closer hubs. Um, you know, people came from Berkeley, too. Lots of punk rockers from Berkeley. Well, let's take a quick break uh, and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll talk about Steve Ballinger and the formation of Whippin' Boy. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once, new quick charge function, three customizable sound styles, plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com pantheon. Buyraycon.com pantheon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I'm glad you brought up Tim Yohannan, too, because obviously Maximum Rock and Roll ended up being even more associated with the San Francisco hardcore scene, kind of drove the Dead Kennedys out of that scene. Um, But 
as you talk in the book, it wasn't quite as doctrinaire at the beginning. But let's talk about Steve Ballinger and the formation of Whipping Boy. Um, since Nico Winter has been in Oxbow and was a second guitarist or a later guitarist in Whipping Boy, I think a lot of people were confused, like I was, that he had been your partner all through Whipping Boy. But it was actually Steve Ballinger that was your uh, musical partner in that. Tell us about Steve, how you got together, and how you came to form a band. Um, I had just, I decided it got fired up that summer. I was working a, a, a pretty much a great city job, but not city jobs were not good for people who really want to work. <laughs> so I, I ended up like plotting and planning that summer about what I was going to do. And as soon as I got back to Stanford, I was like, I want a band. I want to start a band. I want to start. And I don't know this guy, Dave McLean heard me or Dave Nagler, sorry, heard me. And I don't remember even his connection to me. He's like, Hey, um, I think, you know, in those days when you show up with a leather jacket and a mohawk, people just come up and start talking to you. So the guy came up and started talking to me and he said, oh, there's this guy that we know, you know, he plays a football player, but he's, he plays guitar. He, I heard him wanting to start a band and, uh, and I had seen him here and there, like in the varsity weight room and then walking along. And, and one day I was on my moped <laughs> with a leather jacket and a ski hat, engineer boots had to be a 90 degrees and I was going back to some, to, I lived in the trailers, these kind of uh, uh, condemned trailers that they had on campus for people who had bad luck like me. And I saw him walking along with this woman, Britt, and I waved and he waved and I was like, yeah, that's the guy. I'll, I'll talk to him later. And then I thought, when later? So I made a U-turn and was like, hey, you're, you're Steve, right? And he was like, yeah. I mean, this is me, full New York. I'd just been here not that long. Still had the heavy New York accent, which he said, <laughs> it was, it was like, he said it was like I'd come from Mars. And I said, hey, how do I get a hold of you? And he got his phone number. He goes, well, I'm, I'm, oh, he was living in some fraternity house then. So he said, come by the house. And, and we just started talking about, about music from there and uh, uh, found Adam Zimbardo, Phil Zimbardo's, you know, Stanford Prison Experiment guy's son uh, at this uh, fraternity called, nicknamed Alpha Drugs, Alpha Delts. And then, uh, and, and Nagler was the first drummer. So we, you know, found a rehearsal spot at the Hippie Co-op. And that was the beginning. And it's pretty classic hardcore band lineup that, uh, you know, it's a bodybuilder and a guy from the football team. I mean, that was kind of the knock from, say, Hollywood punk rockers against the, the Huntington Beach yep. bands. That well, was not only not urban jocks, not only that, it was it was a, a great cause for paranoia and standoffishness with um, with the maximum rock and roll people. And we just inserted ourselves in there like in a very serious way, like you record the show on a Tuesday, we'll see you on a Tuesday. As all, They weren't going to tell us to stop coming, so as often as they would have us, we would just be like, hey, we're going to help and make ourselves useful in some way, shape, or form. At the very least, we learn how radio is run. Maybe they play our stuff every now and then. And uh, and so that's kind of that's kind of what we did. But there was always this kind of slight sneering contempt, you know, because we were so-called jocks. Of course, now that all those people are dead, and and, uh, and I'm still doing I'm still going on tour. Doing, yeah, yeah, man. You know that's what I'm saying. The, the second version of the memoir would have been full of stuff like this. Now that they're dead and I'm still playing shows, ah, who's got the last laugh? You know, but. Uh, uh, but you know, it, it had us it, it had us fit in really nicely with the DC guys. Who, of course, those DC guys then you know, forgetting about the fact that we were physically fit 
did and jogging when we were lifting weights when we weren't playing shows accused us all of being on cocaine. So that was kind of funny. And I, I did want to cover the sort of the drugs of the era. Like there is a bit of a swerve in the book where I think people here in New York 70s and they assume there's going to be a lot of cocaine talk. But LSD is actually the drug uh, that you discuss the most in the book. And that's exactly like, you know, if we've been doing this letter roll project. LSD in the 80s is it's you know it was not the 60s when LSD was at its most popular how did LSD impact you and the and the whole hardcore scene well it was inexpensive so there is that and it chewed up a lot of time you know I don't think I ever had any trip less less than 18 hours so um but a lot I mean that, that it wasn't Despite San Francisco's history, it wasn't really it was like it was like red wine in San Francisco. Um, I discovered later that, of course, everybody in San Francisco was, you know, headlong into crystal meth or crank. I think it was in the early stages was called crank, you know, before it was manufactured better. So um, I, I remember there's a guy, a fairly famous guy who I will not out on the show because I did not out him in the book. But I remember talking to him. He's like man, I got to get out of New York. Why? Ah, uh, you know, it was so he was having problems with heroin. So like, you can't be in New York and have problems with heroin in the 80s. You got to go. So where does he choose to go to get clean? San Francisco. <laughs> and I, talk, I talked to him a little bit later. He's like, man, I'm getting out of San Francisco. Because then he started having a problem with crystal meth. Where'd he go back to? Back to New York. <laughs> so he ping-ponged back and forth. So these were the prevailing drugs. And I mean, in a lot of ways, the drugs that speed up your system don't have you playing well in the long term, man. You know, I mean, I, I, yeah, it just, you know, teeth, hep A, B, C, um, you know, those guys. And then, of course, then, oh, I've been up for four days. I really need something to smooth my way out. And so then heroin, I mean, you know, a lot of talented people went by the wayside because it was literally like no rules. LSD was a good basic. I'm going to sit around and think a lot, you know. Um, and if you manage not to cross abuse, you were probably OK, you know. But the tendency to cross abuse was really high. I just had no interest in other drugs. So. At the time, <laughs> yeah. hence no second memoir. <laughs> let's see. So let's talk about the scene a little bit more. You've mentioned uh, Klaus Floyd and his wife, which I was going to, I generally just let it slide when you start talking about people's wives, but um, you, you brought it up. What was your relationship like with the dead Kennedys? Like, you know, why would, did Weapon Boy ever want to be on alternative tentacles? Were you disappointed that you weren't? Of course. Like, yeah. What was your relationship with them like? I mean, even produced a record and still didn't get on alternative t tentacles. What was that I a know, you know, I was, question? I was, yeah, I was hanging out at Biafra's house a lot. I mean, I did it. This was, I'm sure he's going to be unhappy with how he was portrayed in the book. Um, but, you know, it could have gotten a lot weirder, you know, because I was there for the collapse of his marriage. And I could say that I saw the writing on the wall with that, which I did. Um, you know, I thought that Teresa, his wife was hot. I could, I could clearly tell that she was looking, you know, uh, but well, yeah, well, well, I'm going to put the guy on front street for that. Why would I mention that? I mean, you know, he was, uh, he had, you know, to a certain degree based on their status and standing at the time, he had comfortably and safely and probably correctly big brothered me, you know, uh, and that was all right. You know, I, I, I learned a lot of stuff. I learned about how to put out records from East Bay Ray, 
Um, you know, I uh, Biafra was a, a, a crazy kind of uh, record collector, so I got turned on to Flipper by him and the Butthole Surfers by him, and um, um, you know, and uh, and he, you know, accurately probably cr- critiqued a lot of my early efforts. And we made for many years, we made efforts to be on Alternative Tentacles, and it, that stopped right around the time of Serenade in Red, the Oxbow Records Serenade in Red, where we just listened to the record and thought, you know, he's kind of doing joke music, and this is not Oxbow at this point is turning, you know, from Let Me Be a Woman to Serenade in Red, we just got very serious, and the, it was clear Alternative Tentacles was not at all a place for us, and that's probably around the time I stopped listening to them, because that's probably about the time they put out the last good band that they had, which I think was No Means No, so... Wow, yeah, that has been uh, quite a while. So let's hear a uh, third song, and this is off the infamous Muru Muru album. This is My Day at the Lake. My day at the lake off the Muramura album. So tell us about the difficult second album. And you know, you mentioned in the book that that when you personally were were releasing the album and bringing the first copies of it to the various record stores and alternative scene in the Bay Area, that before you finished your circuit, you already had returns. Was it a conscious decision to alienate the hardcore audience, or were you just thinking that you could? Were you comparing yourself to like the Minuteman or Who's Do or somebody that could, you know, quote unquote, progress and, and kind of modify the music, but not be totally alienated well, from the scene or? We were confused. We, we uh, in, in certain ways, we thought that the people who liked us were not just people who were like, screw it. I want to hear some hardcore. I'll listen to any hardcore. But that these are people that were along for the whipping board journey and would be happy to listen to whatever it is that we did. That's a bit of myopia on our part. The, also, the reality was those were the days where, unlike with Oxbow, where we used to woodshed a lot of this stuff live before we recorded it all. So every single one of those songs occurred within the context of a hardcore set to much acclaim. You know, it was just collected all on one record with Klaus, you know, first time producer Klaus at the helm um, that it just it, it struck people as like, what? The, what the whether or not? No, you know. So, um, um, you know, but it's still my favorite, my favorite kind of whipping boy record in that it was, you know, like I like I, I mentioned this book about how the strange kind of uh, uh, dissonance between like I would go to other people's places and I go how come their place looks like this and my place looks like my place? These are these internal eminences, right? Your your essence makes itself known through your space. I mean, if I, I got books, what am I going to put those books in? Give me that milk crate. You know, this is not a way to design a house, you know? Okay, there you go, books in the milk crate. I mean, other people actually took time. So I started to think like, yeah, I mean, with Oxbow, it's completely what we did to get to Love's Holiday from Fuckfest was a journey. I couldn't have done Love's Holiday, the second record after Fuckfest. It wouldn't have worked. So now, with the excess of caution, we had to do seven records to get to, to, to a Love's Holiday. Instead, with Moor Moor, we just did it right out the bat. All the weird shit that had been floating around in our heads kind of came out on that record. And so, I mean, 
given that you've had a pretty successful run with Oxbow, a, a very lengthy and, and, and successful run, I assume there's not a lot of woulda, coulda, shouldas with Whipping Boy, but if you do indulge in a woulda, coulda, shoulda with Whipping Boy, would you have done something different with Muramura? Would you have tried to carry the hardcore audience along and transition more gently or uh, gone with an even harder break with hardcore? Like, uh, are you happy with how things turned out? No, no, no. This, I mean, keep in mind at the same time, we were listening to bands that were later, you know, that were later first class of what Oxbow was second class of. And I'm thinking about, I already knew about Scratch Acid, right? Uh, Decroitson D- was already making changes. That song they did, In My Room, It's All White, White, even Social Unrest with their song, I Love You. There were lots of hardcore bands that were moving off of hardcore. So that, I, I mean, we do a lot of woulda, coulda, shoulda. We talk about it all the time, Ballinger and I specifically, even Nico, like, hey, I found the tapes. Maybe we might want to remix this because, you know, later, uh, God love him, you know, uh, Klaus is, you know, I, I would defend him to the death, but I, I, I think we probably could have produced that record a little bit better. So we've talked about that. And then we had uh, Brian Sheckley in it at Grand Theft Audio in LA who released Sub- Subcreature which was the Whipping Boy hardcore retrospective. So we've had an opportunity to rethink this stuff, plus, you know, the lawsuit with the Irish Whipping Boy and the money we got from that about maybe reinvesting that and doing something. But that's, you know, this is, uh, at this point, it's getting going to be harder and harder to do because all this stuff is on tape. So find, good luck finding a studio that has can roll 24-track tape, you know? Yeah, and so, like, the, the bands you mentioned would be, I would consider sort of second wave post-hardcore, what we call noise rock, what Chris Gow infamously and unfortunately tried to call the pig fucker scene, you yeah. know, Scratch Acid, the Buttle Surfers, Big Black, et cetera. Mech Mench. So you saw yourself in that more so than, say, the 84 SST who's could do Meat Puppet style of post-hardcore. Is that fair? Um, yeah, we played with all those guys. I mean, we played with uh, Meat Puppets or the Minutemen, and there was something really... You know, I talk about this in the book um, because of all the touring together. There was something really culty and insular about about the whole SST scene. It didn't feel like there was it was allowing much room for, you know, access or participation. So we we love those bands. I mean, I, I was a bigger fan of the Minutemen than I was of Husker Du. And for some reason, Greg Norton was constantly trying to bash my head in with his headstock on his base for reasons that weren't clear to me. Still don't know. <laughs> sure Still don't know. Yeah, maybe, probably. Don't know why he had it out for me. But um, and I just didn't I didn't. It took me a long time to appreciate kind of uh, the, the Husker do genius, um, as it were. So, yeah, I didn't I didn't see myself as as, as part of that more. Like I say, Mechtmensch from the Midwest, Decroitson. There were some people who I knew from hardcore who were taking tentative next steps in the stuff that was cool, that I was really interested in. The first time we played Austin, of course, we stayed with the Butthole Surfers. And then they had uh, uh, King Coffee had another band, the Hugh Beaumont Experience, before then. So there were people who were already like, you say, yeah, you know, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. That's not what I'm doing. But I'm based in that, but I'm doing this thing. So, yeah, it... Uh, I, I, you know, Monday morning quarterbacking, I, I, I wouldn't have done it anything differently. I would have taken fewer records up on my motorcycle to rough trade so I didn't have to go back in the rain immediately to get the, the other 350 that they didn't want, you know, so. So another one more would have could have should have question. Another route that a lot of bands took and particularly New York hardcore bands, which, you know, because you're friends with Harley and because you're from New York, I think 
I've always kind of lumped you in with, with those bands, but that's clearly a mistake. Like, did y'all ever even consider the sort of DRI or COC metal crossover thing like SSD did or any of those bands? Was that even on your radar as a possibility? Of course, of course. If you listen to Third Secret of Fatima, where you listen to a song like Enemy, I mean, it was clear that that's, you know, COC opened, played support for us the first time we played North Carolina. And we're like, hey, that's kind of cool. And Blast in the West Coast, we're kind of taking that black flag thing and going a little bit further down down that road. But I was not, um, I had still not been really convinced uh, on metal. And it was my friend of mine, Ron, from uh, the band Juvenile Justice. He's the first one to expose me to accept and he said, you have to go see Motorhead, you know, uh, uh, Discharge is opening for them and the Bad Brains. You, you got to come to the... And I was like, yeah, Motorhead, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I had a Motorhead record at the house, you know. It came in as a re review copy and my stepfather brought it home. And I was just like, yeah, yeah, you know. So, um, yeah, so imagine my surprise when COC ended up being huge. Or all those guys, those guys used to roadie for us, like Soundgarden guys. They were too young to get into the Whipping Boy show played in Seattle at the Metropole. And they were like, yeah, man, if we, can we, if we carry your gear in, can we... Yeah, yeah, sure. Carry the gear, and you got. We'll put you on the list. You're our crew, Kim Thiall and and uh, and Chris Quinnell. Man, so imagine my surprise when they got huge. I was like, Hey, buddy. Hey, hey, buddy. Remember, remember, remember me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm sure that you could have submitted a, a resume to be on their crew if uh, yeah. you had enough references. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, that's what keep, people keep telling me that uh, we made it into the Nirvana. The Diaries thing that Kurt Cobain had listed us as one of the bands he had played with, but I, for the life of me, don't remember it, but it's largely possible, you know. Huh. Um, so tell us about one of the things that was interesting to me was that you mentioned, actually, it's time to cue our last song and then I'll come back to the question. Let's go ahead and hear Shades of Grey from the final Whipping Boy album. Shades of Grey from the third secret of Fatima. Did I get that right? I didn't yep. get that down. Yep. All right, good. Uh, from the third secret of Fatima, the final Whippin' Boy album. And one thing that interested me in the autobiography was you mentioned the money several times that you were making playing with the band. Were you actually netting any money uh, from Whippin' Boy? But you got to understand, when I say money, this is, it's, you, if you think about it from 2023, you're like, he's crazy. But, uh, you know, I don't want to go old guy myself here, but, you know, I remember when gas was 50 cents a gallon, 75 cents a gallon. So, you know, if we got, you know, uh, $75 from a show, uh, that's all of our cars filled with gas. We're pretty happy, you know. So uh, that means I could drive to work my sh very straight job at that point the whole week without having to 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 buy gas. So, um, yeah, it was enough. It was enough to fill it with my job of painting houses, hanging sheetrock and moving furniture to actually be able to live, especially considering that the place I lived in that garage was $50 a month, you know, so I, I, I didn't do too badly. 
So it's all relative. Let's do some more uh, star fucking and talk about some of the other celebrity names that you mentioned in the book. When you talk about money, there's a classic story uh, about Ian McKay in there. Tell us the Ian McKay $100 Eugene story. Hey, man, I'm not taking any grief from a Scotsman. Are you kidding me? <laughs> uh, yeah, Ian McKay, uh, Ewan McTeagle. No, he, he, you know, we were like, hey, man, we, we, we my first last tour, we're in. We're so excited. We'll play for free. Oh, cool. So we play the show and it's like packed out and I'm watching all his cash change hands. I was like, yo, bro, how about a hundred bucks? And he was like, ah. so I browbeat him into giving me a hundred bucks. And like I said, I wouldn't have thought anything about it until they do this Midwest hardcore uh, retro uh, movie, a documentary based, you know, kind of marginally based on that club Goofies, which is right across from where Prince filmed Purple Rain at First, First Avenue. And he was like, Ian said, singled me out. It was like, you know, Eugene said he'd do it for free, asked for $100, and then I, you know, it was kind of fucked. And, uh, and I agree, but 100 times out of 100, I push for that 100 bucks, you know. Uh, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of interesting accounting in hardcore, right? Like, how's offer end up in a house with an elevator? I've never had a house with an elevator, you know? Uh, and then I, I kind of edged around that with Biafra, and Biafra was like, oh, yeah? Well, ask Ian where all the money goes. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's like a tweed ring of guys trying to just say they don't have money. But really, you know, Ian hasn't worked a job since he was working at Haagen-Dazs. That's a pretty good run as far as I'm concerned, you know. And so speaking of Haagen-Dazs employees, um, you talk about Henry Rollins quite a bit in the book as well as sort of it's not quite a falling out, but it's sort of a chilling out with your relationship with Henry. Tell us about your relationship know. with Henry. I, we, we, we used to talk. We used to be friendly, chat, letters, phones. He's the one who turned me on to Diamante Gauss, turned me on to Swans, turned me on to Einstein. Used to send me mixtapes, you know. I stay, I hang out with him down there, come up here, give him acid, give me books, gifts, and stuff. And then, uh, then it stopped. And no idea why. Well, I have some ideas, which I which I write about in the book, but I'm not sure, you know. I mean, hey, if you leave your girlfriend at my place and say, take care of her, you got to understand that a guy like me that's kind of on the spectrum really won't understand what you mean. <laughs> I see. Blame the spectrum. That's, uh, that's... Ah, come on. I mean, look, I, you know, I, I had a lot. I talk about this girlfriend I had where she's like, you know, where I'm just not the messages that other people are getting. I'm not getting like, uh, can we go to your place and watch TV? Sure. Takes her shirt off. I guess it's, I go. It's, guess it's hot in here. I'm not putting it together, man. You take a lot of LSD. It might. Everything does. Everything always means everything else. You don't. You have to be able to forge your way through the rocky shoals to figure out what what are people saying? And what are people meaning? You know? And one more star to talk about. Lydia Lunch gets a little bit of ink in the book. Tell us about your uh, meeting with Lydia, because this was the first one. When you talk about Jello, uh, well, definitely when you talk about Henry and Ian, there's no sort of feeling that you're intimidated or impressed with these guys. You see these guys as peers, not as stars. But with Lydia Lunch, it seems like you saw her as kind of a star before you met her. Ah, I was in love with Lydia. De deeply, deeply, thickly, and thoroughly. We just did a show together. Where were we? We, oh, we were interviewed at KFJC, the radio station, and, and they said, yeah, you know, you used to have a crush on Lydia. I go, I still do. 
<laughs> and I was sitting right next to her when I said it, and she got kind of weirded out. I was like, yeah, whatever. Screw it. It's radio. I'm telling the truth. You deal with it, you know? So, um, no, no, no. I thought, I thought she, I thought that whole, that whole no wave scene was the shit, man. I, I, I still, I mean, that was some of the earliest, most real, they it was just like the right time, the right age difference. Like they were the coolest fucking things on the block as far as I was concerned. And I, 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 I was, really happy to, to be able to participate you know alan vega suicide james chance all of that you know arto Lindsay. that was like i you know exposed to it even if you didn't understand it i understood that something was happening you know and uh, and that she was close enough in my age to feel like a peer and then knowing a little bit of her backstory like she's you know 13 years old so you know Fuck you! I'm going, <laughs> and just and, and went and and you know lived on the Lower East Side at a time when being on the Lower East Side um, was gonna be dangerous. I think it's weird. I just read the autobiography, and I think they cut out the story of me being surrounded by all the Puerto Ricans in this tenement with knives. And, you know. Um, it, <laughs> They cut out a few stories about the hardcore Lower East Side. I guess I guess they figured it was a little bit like, you know, Frenchie with the chainsaw inside the inside the party. And then the people almost stabbing me on the stairwell. I mean, there was a lot of that on the Lower East Side and she just was in the thick of it. So, yeah. So admiration. Yeah. For me, it was like since we've done so many podcasts together and you've told so many stories reading the book was just like an extension of the podcast. And so there's stories that you've told me that probably weren't in the book that I would, you know, recall being in the book when they actually weren't. So I can't, I know you've told me that story, but I can't tell you if I read it in the book or not. Yeah. And it's the same with me. And this is, I just did a, I did a book show at Birmingham uh, as part of supersonic. And I, I said, listen, I, my recall about what's in this book and, and what's not, uh, is sketchy. <laughs> so you got to know that what you're hearing now from my mouth is probably the most cohesive version because, you know, I don't remember what they put in and what they took out. So, um, but yeah, I think they took some of this stuff out, but I, I you know, whatever. I mean, my ge- a good edit is when I don't notice that you've made the edit. So it, some of the stories I had to truncate because they didn't go any, like, you know, the Frenchie and the chainsaw story that was just for hardcore purists alone who remember Frenchie or maybe first generation uh, like rabies from Warzone and a lot of that crazy, you know, Vinny stomping people's eyeballs. All that stuff is maybe down the rabbit hole a bit, but it'll it'll come out during the book tour. So, yeah, and tell us about the book tour to wrap up. This, my guest has been Eugene S. Robinson, yeah. and the book is A Walk Across Dirty Water and Straight into Murderer's Row, new out on Feral House. Yeah, tell us about the book tour. Where can people see you? Well, the reality of it is that uh, because we're still, Oxbow is still playing on Love's Holiday, we have 11 U.S. shows coming up, and the the marching order has been if you can get me a book show uh, this is a Eric Jarvis at Tone Def. If you, if you can get me a book show earlier in the day before soundcheck, I'm glad to do both, you know, providing people pay. And uh, and so that's that's what we're doing. The the day after the New York show, uh, Lydia's going to interview me at Powerhouse Books in in Brooklyn, which should be pretty cool. Um, and then uh, Vincent at at Odyssey touring in the UK and uh, in Europe is going to book some shows for me in, in the, in the UK, you know, places he's booked book tours for me all over Europe. 
So even places where English is not the major language, people will show up and buy books. But there, it, we working with Christina, I found out a weird quirk, which I hadn't known. And that said, if I sell books during the tour, it doesn't count toward my royalty rate <laughs> because they're not scanned. So technically, they, they, they don't. It's, it was some weird. So the best bet is for people to buy it at the bookstore and then have me sign it versus me in a car like I've done in the past, full of books and selling them at shows. Yeah, directly. yeah, yeah. So, well, yeah, everybody should know that. Always buy the book at the bookstore. And if you're an author doing a book tour, make people buy the book at the bookstore. Right, right, right. So, so, every, so everywhere Oxbow is playing, um, you know, there'll be book shows. And then, of course, Bunuel has a double double gatefold LP coming out in, in May. So there'll be shows afoot for that as well. And mostly those shows will be in the U S since Boonwell has played toured Europe four times to, to great acclaim. Just now the money is much better in the U S so in a weird twist. So we'll be doing that more. And so one last question, like one of the things that's notable about your career is that I think you're, you know, one of the very rare artists and it pains me to praise you at all as you know but one of the very rare artists that's pursued creative endeavors for a long period of time and kept the inspiration fresh like and you've done it while having day jobs at the same time which you know i kind of blame the end of my aesthetic ambitions with killing my soul doing day jobs how did you manage to work for intel work for hustler magazine work for the defense industry and keep your creativity going on the side. It's precisely because you were working for those places that you realize it's like you've got two choices. You know, be creative on your on your your own time or die. Can you imagine working at Defense Electronics or Microwave Systems News where I was writing about microwave landing systems and having that be the sum total of your creative output? No, 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 no. Music, music and art and doing the magazines, that stuff kept me alive, man. You know, the other stuff, the straight job, fed me. It paid the rent and let me buy food and pay for gas. But, you know, the other thing is what really kept me alive. And there was a lot of cross-pollination. I mean, I wrote the lyrics to uh, Serenade in Red ensconced in my little wretched cubicle at Nikon, you know, which I had to share the cubicle with a, with a, with a, with a call, with an I-beam. Um, so it was, it was really like Milton in office space. It couldn't, it couldn't have gotten any worse. So all the lyrics for Serenade in Red were written there. A long, slow screw was finished there during that three year period that I was there on my lunch break. So, um, yeah, these jobs made it made it possible. And the thought of being able to one day, you know, have enough fuck you money so that I didn't have to do those jobs, which is almost where I am now. It only took me 61 years. (laughs) (laughs) Dreams come true. Well, Eugene, thanks so much for coming on the show again. The book is A Walk Across Dirty Water, a memoir by Eugene S. Robinson. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Monday, we'll continue to let Motown roll with a recast of Nate and Brooks Long's discussion of David Ritt's biography of the great Marvin Gaye. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 